in recent years, far-right religious nationalists in their quest to crush democracy have packed the courts. Maybe it's time for Democrats to expand the Supreme Court. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. America's brilliant founders created three co-equal branches of government, executive, legislative, and judiciary. Each is intended to be a check on the other. Throughout my lifetime, there's always been a struggle among the three. Nixon's so-called imperial presidency, power, openly intended to crush the power of the other two branches. Of course, resulting in Congress reasserting itself in 1970 with the War Powers Act, seeking to curb his unchecked, some might say wild, war policy in Indochina. Then in 1973, the Supreme Court ordered the president to turn over Watergate documents, resulting in his resignation. There are many other examples of the legitimacy of the balance of power under our Constitution. Clearly, our very democracy is at risk from any shift in power among the three legs of the stool supporting the Republic. In recent years, the far right has packed courts up and down the country with the intent of circumventing the legislative branch. In an article in Tikkun magazine, based on his just-published book, our guest today, law professor Stephen M. Feldman, says... Democrats should pack the Supreme Court. The idea, I would guess, is to restore the balance and start to reverse the serious attacks on our democracy, undercutting our system of laws by the anti-democracy far right, who are all about imposing a religious nationalism as opposed to a republic. I kind of like a republic myself. Stephen Feldman is the Housel Arnold Distinguished Professor of Law and Adjunct Professor of Political Science at the University of Wyoming, and he's been there since 2002. He teaches classes in constitutional law and jurisprudence and has published numerous books and articles in these fields. His newest book, which was officially released only a few days ago, is Pack the Court! Exclamation point, a Defense of Supreme Court Expansion which is the foundation for the Tikkun essay. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Steve Feldman. Thanks for having me on. Well, from an important book called The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart, I learned that the most effective strategic tools of those powers focused on replacing our Republican form of government with the religious nationalism has been what I would call packing the courts. Well out of the view of the mainstream media, they've installed far-right judges on federal courts all over the country with the goal of circumventing the legislative process to force their agenda into law without us noticing. It's been brilliantly stealth. The term court packing, I believe, first came up when President Franklin Roosevelt attempted to expand the number on the Supreme Court from nine to uh, up to as many as 15. 
let's start with a few questions packed together. <laughs> what was his intent? Is it similar to what you are calling for? And what happened to his proposal? Hey, um, uh, first of all, you have to understand um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's court packing plan um, within the context of the New Deal. Uh, so, uh, FDR took office, uh, first in, in 1932, uh, and, and as is, you know, widely known, he and a New Deal Congress started passing all sorts of, of New Deal, uh, legislation. The, uh, Supreme Court at that time was, um, uh, quite conservative. Uh, there was a, a, a conservative block of four justices who uh, were firmly opposed to, to most of the types of legislation in the New Deal. And then there was another some uh, justice who was conservative, we might call him a moderate conservative. Um, uh, his name was Owen Roberts. Uh, and, and with those five justices, many New Deal statutes were being uh, invalidated, so thwarting the the efforts of the New Deal, and then uh, Roosevelt was was overwhelmingly by a landslide reelected um, in in 1936, and he still had full support of of a New Deal Congress with both houses, um, and uh, Roosevelt just by happenstance. Uh, had no appointments to, to the Supreme Court during his first term. Uh, so, so you know, he's getting thwarted by by this very conservative Supreme Court, and he never gets any appointments. So, uh, at that point, after he gets this this um, uh, sort of reaffirmation of the New Deal and his landslide reelection, uh, he decides that uh, you know, instead of waiting around for for a Supreme Court justice to retire or maybe pass away um, uh, and where he could get an appointment, uh, he should take action. And, and that's when they came up with the court packing plan. Now, they, they actually had been, the administration had been uh, uh, debating uh, this idea of, of expanding the Supreme Court. This has been going on for quite some time. There were articles in magazines and newspapers suggesting the possibility, um, but really only reached, reached a conclusion to go ahead and do it uh, by passing a new statute. And they had talked about, well, do we need a constitutional amendment, which they clearly didn't, and they, just, they realized that. Um, um, they only made the decision, finally, after that, that 1936 election, and then he announced it uh, only in, in February of, of uh, 1937. Uh, so uh, uh, a few months after the election, and you know what he clearly was trying to do was to shift the um, uh, uh, power, the political power, on the court to to create a uh, progressive uh, majority on the court instead of having this conservative block controlling. The court. What what he did though is he did not openly uh, admit as much. He he in publicly announcing um, the court packing plan and and he came in 
for criticism for this. Oh yeah. Uh, he he said that uh, the reason for the court packing plan was that many of the justices were unable to uh, keep up with their workload, and this this was uh, patently false. Um, <laughs> that they couldn't keep up with their workload. Uh, because they were too old. <laughs> and so what his proposal was to add uh, a new justice, an additional justice to the Supreme Court for every justice who stayed on the court past the age of 70 with a maximum of 15 justices. Uh, and um, it was controversial you know, um, when he introduced it. Uh, there were some new dealers who, who were not on board, uh, but it, it did have a chance of, of um, passing. Um, what, what happened, though, was that uh, that moderate conservative justice, Owen Roberts, um, flipped his vote in a couple of key cases um, uh, in early 1937. And... Um, very soon afterwards, one of the very conservative justices announced his retirement at the end of the term. Uh, uh, and so, you know, that all contributed to this feeling like, well, maybe we don't really meet the court packing plan um, because the court seems to have changed direction these two cases. And then, you know, Roosevelt's going to get an appointment anyway. Uh, but what was really the, the uh, sort of the, the uh, death knell for Roosevelt's court packing plan is that a um, key supporter of of the plan, the Senate Majority Leader Joe Robinson, um, uh, he died unexpectedly, uh, and it was about a week later. Then the Senate took a vote, and and the the plan was was defeated, but. You know, in some ways, Roosevelt got exactly what he wanted. The court, the court uh, shifted in a more progressive fashion, and and in particular, what the court started doing was uh, it it accepted New Deal type legislation and sort of this new form of democracy, which which Roosevelt was leading, which I call pluralist democracy. So, under Roosevelt's approach to democracy, at least in theory everybody was supposed to be able to participate. Everybody was full and equal citizen and should be allowed to, to vote. Now that wasn't always true, um, quite clearly. Um, but it, it was true that, that the electorate expanded considerably, particularly with regard to, to immigrant communities where it had been extremely difficult to vote in, in prior decades. Uh, and the court kind of came around and, and accepted the New Deal and this new approach to, to democracy. Uh, and part of the reason for the, the court switch was um, uh, the court packing plan. Now, that, you know, that's a historical statement that some historians would contest, but I, I think it's, it's very hard to, to say politics did not play a, a pretty significant role in, in the shift of of the court to to accept the new deal and, and pluralist democracy well certainly a lot of politics and getting things done is about leverage and obviously uh he uh raised the uh the pressure and uh it seemed to have some effect and and the fact is you know that a lot of his new deal programs that were thought by some to be unconstitutional uh became law and served the country exceedingly well you write 
Unlike many recent proposals to restructure or curb the court, adding justices is clearly constitutional. Did our founding documents not specify the number on the court? And, and what are those recent proposals of which you speak? And, and why do some people uh, say it's not constitutional? Well, well um, first of all, the Constitution itself, the text, uh, says nothing about the size of the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and really, the, the uh, Article 3 of the Constitution, which is the, the part of the Constitution that focuses on the federal judiciary, the federal courts, is very short. Um, you know, if you compare Article 3, for instance, with the detail in Article 1, which focuses on Congress and legislative powers, uh, Article 1 is far more detailed. Article 3 basically says there's a Supreme Court and Congress can establish lower courts. Uh, and there's a little bit about jurisdiction. And then basically that's it. Jurisdiction means the power of the court to decide uh, certain types of cases. Um, so um, the fact is then that, that Congress has actually changed the size of the court numerous times, uh, uh, especially during the the first hundred years of the nation's history um, uh, if, in you know, the volatile decade of the 1860s with Civil War and Reconstruction, um, the, the Congress changed the size of the court maybe like four times uh, during that period. It got as large as 10 at one point and then ended up back at nine. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, just in terms of changing the number of justices on the court, uh, it's there's very strong argument that it's constitutional. It'd be very hard to argue that it's it's not constitutional. About you know one one of the only reasonable arguments, and I still think it's a very weak one, um, um, for it being unconstitutional, is that somehow uh, the failure of FDR to pass his court packing plan created a negative constitutional norm. Um, uh, that, you know, that, that precludes court packing. That, that, that just doesn't make sense. And it typically, um, uh, it looks at, uh, the failure to adopt Roosevelt's court packing plan as, as sort of like an utter and complete failure, which, you know, as I explained, sure. you know, earlier, it really wasn't. Right. Um, now in terms of other, other, um, uh, recent proposals. There's there's all sorts of um, proposals. I, I think of my proposal as as what I call straightforward court packing. You add justices to the Supreme Court, period. Right. So you know, if the Democrats were to go ahead and do this, they'd add let's say four justices to the Supreme Court. The president would would nominate four uh, progressive justices, and the Senate would confirm. Right. And of course, all this depends on having complete democratic control in the national government. Um, if you don't control the House and the Senate and the presidency, you're not going to be able to pass a court-packing statute. And if you don't control the presidency and the Senate, you can't nominate and confirm justices. Yeah. So some of the other proposals um, uh, say, well, maybe what we should do is just have um, term limits yes. for Supreme Court justices like 18 years or so and that way um, all presidents would get to nominate uh 
you know, a couple of justices, uh, at least in a four-year uh-huh. term. It'd be something like every two years or so. What that doesn't do um, is is um, address the fact that right now we have a six-to-three conservative bloc controlling the Supreme Court uh, and, and saying, well, going forward, new justices would have term limits, uh, and usually it's, it's, it's uh, going forward only. Um, um, that doesn't address the, the fact that we'd have a conservative bloc controlling the court for, for, you know, maybe a generation, right? And on top of that, there's questions about constitutionality, right? And again, straightforward court packing, no problem. Saying Supreme Court justices suddenly are going to have term limits, um, that very well might be unconstitutional. Uh-huh. And same is true with some other proposals. For instance, one proposal I've seen says, well, let's take every uh, circuit court of appeals judge. So these are federal judges at the circuit court of appeals level mm-hmm. and make them into Supreme Court justices. So we'd have something like 170 to 175 what? Supreme Court justices. And then we would choose sort of randomly choose nine justices to sit on a panel and decide cases. So they wouldn't all sit at a time, but any nine of them could be plucked uh, out, you know, sort of randomly to sit on a particular case. And then, you know, there's other other proposals too. The problem with all of them is there are reasonable, reasonably strong arguments that these proposals would be unconstitutional and given the stance of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, there's a very good chance the court would invalidate any any one of those types of proposals. It'd be very difficult for even this conservative court to to deem a straightforward court packing plan unconstitutional. It says that the text is is so clear in not setting the number of justices, it'd be extremely difficult to to reach that conclusion. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about uh, a a real stumbling block to democracy that that's been there. The uh, uh, right wing Supreme Court, the six to three Supreme Court. Our guest today, uh, law professor Stephen Feldman, has a brand new book out, "Pack the Court: A Defense of Supreme Court Expansion." You also write. Quote, the primary criticism of court packing is that it would undermine the court's legitimacy, end of quote. Interesting. One of my daughter's law professors at, uh, at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Kermit right. Roosevelt III, makes that very argument. Is not one distinction of the court that it is free from partisan politics, that adding numbers will inject politics. Does the prospect of court packing destroy the court's purity and undermine its perceived legitimacy. I wonder if you could speak to that concern, please. Sure. Yeah. And and there's there's really sort of two versions of of um, this argument. Um, one one version is that the court, its makeup, um, its size, and its decision making process, the way it decides cases. Um, should be uh, purified of politics. Politics should not intrude into the court uh, in any way at all. And I think that version of this argument is is obviously false. First of all, with regard to the size of the court, we've already talked about how 
how the size can change. And, and Congress has changed its, the size of the court multiple times, often for political reasons. Second, the confirmation, the, the nomination and confirmation processes are obviously uh, political. That's why uh, so much angst is, is uh, in, you know, provoked whenever there's a Supreme Court uh, nomination and, and their confirmation hearings. Um, and then, the, you know, maybe most important, and I think most, you know, perhaps less obvious, is that the decision-making process itself is always partly political. So I, 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 I like to think of the decision-making process as a law politics dynamic. So in other words, the justices do really care about the law, right? They, they sincerely, at least in most cases, in most cases, the justices sincerely try to interpret the relevant legal text as best as possible. So if they're talking about the constitutional text, reading the First Amendment, let's say, they're reading the First Amendment, right? Or if it's a statute, they're reading uh, a statute um, in the way they think is, is correct, right? And I think they're sincere, at least in most cases, if that qualifier, that's what they're trying to do. So. But interpretation of a legal text is never like an arithmetic problem. It's never... Two plus two equals four. It's not mechanical. There's always an ambiguity in the interpretive process. And a justice, uh, like any other person, can read that text only from his or her um, interpretive perspective or horizon, which would include one's politics, one's cultural background, one's religion. So in other words, Politics always influences how a justice reads, for instance, the constitutional text. So just to give an example, let's say we took two justices on today's court from opposite political sides, like uh, uh, Samuel Alito, who's one of the most conservative justices on one side, and, and um, uh, Justice Sotomayor, who's one of the more progressive justices. And let's say... Uh, we have a First Amendment free speech case, and they're both reading the free speech clause, uh, and they reach different conclusions, right? Which is very likely, right? You know, uh, uh, Alito reads it and reaches a very conservative conclusion. Sotomayor reads the same language and reaches uh, a more progressive conclusion. What I'd say is neither justice is lying, or being disingenuous or somehow stupid or something. They simply are approaching the text from different political horizons, which changes and shapes their respective uh, interpretive conclusions. That's why a justice can usually feel comfortable in saying, well, I read this in the you know, I, the best way possible from a legal standpoint. And that conclusion just happens to match the justice's political preferences, right? It's very rare that a justice is going to read a legal text, a constitutional text or otherwise, and reach conclusion, conclusion which is the opposite of the justice's political uh, outlook, right? It's almost always consistent. And 
the reason for that is politics is part of the interpretive process. And again, that doesn't mean the law doesn't matter. It means, though, that that the law is not mechanical, at least legal interpretation is not mechanical. To bring this back to the question you asked me about, uh, the the idea of of how court packing would undermine the political purity, the purity of the court as a legal judicial institution bereft of politics. So one answer, and this is for the first version of, of, uh, that argument, the court just is not a pure legal judicial institution bereft of politics because politics is always part of, of the court, not only its makeup, but its actual decision-making process. I think the more interesting and serious version of that criticism that, well, court packing will sometime, somehow undermine uh, the legitimacy of the court says, well, even if what I just said is true, that you know, politics is part of the decision-making process. What happens if the public loses its faith in the court, right? Mm-hmm. The legitimacy of the court depends on the public's acceptance of the court and the court's decisions. And what happens if court packing would undermine that public legitimacy of the court? But the fact is that, that political science research, empirical research, on public perceptions of the court suggests that's not true. Then that that um, uh, for instance, one one line of research in political science says the court enjoys this this reservoir of goodwill. In other words, there's there's sort of a positivity bias in favor of the court that people have developed over time. Um, so even if the court does something uh, that that an individual disagrees with just seeing or noticing the court, right? Paying attention to the court sort of uh, brings back that positivity bias. Like it reinforces this, this uh, feeling of goodwill towards the court. So even if there is a court packing, I think the odds are, um, and we can get into this more if you want to, but I think the odds are that, that, that um, a democratic court packing plan uh, would probably not undermine the court's legitimacy, but if, if anything, I think it's, it's likely to, to reinforce the court's legitimacy. I think that's an, an interesting point that, uh, I mean, public opinion does matter. They're supposed to be, you know, separate from that by the fact that it's a, a lifetime appointment. You know, they're supposed to be uh, immune from public opinion, but it, it does matter. It really does, as with everything in, in government. And, you know, you talk about how and a lot of Supreme Court justices have been appointed by one president and gone another way. Uh, we so many examples. Uh, president Reagan's uh, nominee, uh, I believe it was. Um, oh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, but they they change as they as they see the Constitution and and see the law. And when they they know they're appointed by a liberal or a conservative, but. Uh, when when they actually have to you know check out the constitutionality, which I agree that that all of them, no matter what their political point uh, of view, they they do want to adhere to the constitution as they understand it. And when you talk about you know how it's not arithmetic, it's not mechanical. We've heard the term constitutional originalist from people like the late Antonin Scalia. The right argues justices must be originalists. What's wrong with that argument? Well, I, I think originalism is is um, 
really more of a political stance than an interpretive method. So in other words, conservatives, and typically it's conservatives, um, uh, hold out originalism as an interpretive method, which does lead to um, clear and certain conclusions. So just as I said, uh, uh, interpretation, particularly constitutional interpretation, is not like an arithmetic problem. Uh, basically, originalists are saying, well, if you stick to the, the original meaning, the original public meaning of the text, then it is like a, an arithmetic problem. Um, there's a clear answer. Uh, and it's only not clear if, if you start injecting politics. So there, there's the, the political payoff of originalism is that originalists claim they are being apolitical, right? They're saying um, we're above politics. Um, um, and we're giving the, the, the neutral, apolitical answers to constitutional questions. The problem is it doesn't work um, for basically the same reasons I was articulating earlier about interpretation in general is uh, when a justice uh, claims to be interpreting the constitutional text from an originalist perspective, they really are injecting their own political yes. horizons. And I, I mean, I can give you uh, examples of, of that. First of all, one of the most famous of, of um, uh, uh, Justice Scalia's opinions, and the one where he most closely tried to, to follow an originalist position was the Heller case, which was a... Uh, uh, Second Amendment case involving gun rights, right. um, and and he wrote this you know very long opinion for the majority um, protecting an individual right to own and possess guns. And interestingly, Justice Stevens wrote wrote a dissent in that case where he too uh, tried to follow an originalist approach uh, and reached exactly the opposite conclusion. And and. You know, one way to distinguish those two opinions, the majority opinion of Scalia and the dissenting opinion of Stevens, would be, would be, say, would, would be to distinguish between what some originalists call new originalism yeah. and other originalists called old originalism. So old originalism is the older one. It emerged in the 1980s. And first of all, nobody talked about originalism before the 1980s. It was a political invention of conservatives in the 1980s to try to bolster their particular views of uh -huh. the Constitution, right? Uh -huh. So old originalism started off by saying, we have to interpret the Constitution by looking to the constitutional text and the framers' intentions, period. Nothing else. You can't consider anything else, they would say. Okay? And that gives us clear and certain answers, right? Two plus two equals four. So text plus the framers' intentions, that's it. Okay? There were all sorts of criticisms of that approach, and originalists themselves acknowledge that some of these criticisms were difficult to overcome. Instead of, of um, uh, repudiating originalism and, and opening up to some more pluralistic or eclectic type of approach to constitutional interpretation, they tried to... to um, uh, 
change originalism, to sort of refine originalism, and hence that led to what's called new originalism, Hmm. uh, which said instead of looking to the framers' intentions, um, we should look to the original public meaning of the text. So instead of looking to the subjective thoughts of the framers, right, um, now we just look at what the public thought the text meant in like 1789. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, still a very difficult historical question, which leads to all sorts of, of uh, ambiguities. Um, but the fact is now we have two different types of originalism, and I don't want to suggest that's all we have. There are more types of originalism than, than just those two, or we can make refinements within each of those categories. Um, so the point is that simply saying you're an originalist doesn't even narrow you to one particular interpretive approach. <laughs> you still have to decide, but what, what type of originalism are you talking about? Well, you ha- if you have to choose, how are you supposed to be choosing, right? Why is new originalism better than old originalism? <laughs> and why, you know, if the uh, old originalism was the be-all and end-all of constitutional interpretation, how can you find, suddenly say, it's not because there are some problems with it. Um, so my point is that originalism does not deliver what it's promising. But what it's promising didn't really matter. What mattered is, is that it, it's, it gives a political advantage to conservatives because they can say, we are being neutral. <laughs> uh. We're being neutral and apolitical. We're, we're keeping politics out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm reminded uh, there were the Platonic uh, uh, ideas that there could be the perfect ideal, you know, and that that's objective and above human frailties and opinion. Uh, I don't think that works. We, <laughs> it's not the case in the law. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a important part of our democracy, the Supreme Court. Our guest is uh, law professor Stephen Feldman. Who says that Democrats should pack the court. He's got a new book. Just came out, Pack the Court, A Defense of Supreme Court Expansion. And, you know, we, we are a nation of, of humans. And as you say, an individual's support for restrictions such as court packing turns on whether the court decides cases consistently with that poli- individual's political outlook. And, and you also say that public attention along the same vein on a court packing controversy will likely reinforce and might even enhance the court's legitimacy. Talk about that, please. Sure. Yeah. And, and something we touched on a little bit earlier, and I'll elaborate that. Even if what I've been arguing about, that, that politics is always part of the court, the court's makeup um, uh, and uh, the decision making process, you know, one major concern and reasonable concern is, well, if we had a court packing plan, will it undermine the court's legitimacy? Will the right. public lose its faith in the court? And um, there are basically two lines of, of empirical research from political scientists that I think are, are uh, relevant here. One line of, of political science research, and I think this is the predominant thinking right now um, in political science, is that the court um, 
enjoys this positivity bias. Um, in other words, there's there's sort of uh, a reservoir of goodwill towards the court uh, that that uh, the people, the public, generally believes the court is is doing a good job. So even if the court comes down with a decision that an individual dislikes, um, uh, that will not undermine that individual's um, uh, positive outlook of the court. Right now, there there are some things that could undermine positive outlook. But, you know, a decision here, decision there, that's not going to change uh, individuals' attitude towards the court. In fact, anything that draws attention to the court is likely to reinforce uh, that positivity bias, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. even if there's a, a court packing plan, um, as, as particularly if the Democrats say, well, uh, as, as you saw at the introduction today, um, uh, the Republicans have 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 intentionally packed the courts and tried to shift the courts to the right. If the Democrats uh, were to enact a court packing plan and say we're trying to re, you know to to balance things out, we're mm-hmm. trying to to um, return the court to its proper um, decision making approach. Uh, that's likely to to reinforce the court's legitimacy. Now, a second line of, of uh, political science research says, well, it's not so much this positive positivity bias. People will will be influenced by their political, their partisan political ideology. So, so basically, if if you know you're a progressive or a Democrat, and the Democrats were to to back the court, you're you're likely to say, yeah, that's probably a good thing. If you're a conservative and a Republican and the Democrats were to pack the court, you're likely to say, right. oh, you know, horrors, that's terrible. Right. Uh, and and so in this instance, I, I think, you know, the fact is that that not only did, did Joe Biden get a pretty substantial uh, majority in terms of the popular vote yes. in the last election, that the, the Democrats have um, um won the popular vote, I, I believe, in seven out of the last presidential elections, um, which also goes, goes to the point about uh, how we have this conservative bloc controlling the court, right? Seven out of the last presidential elections have, have the Democrats have won the popular vote, but conservatives are you know locked in with this, this conservative bloc controlling the Supreme Court, even though presidents get to to uh, nominate uh, justices for open seats, and and you know I think this goes to the point you you raised it earlier about how how conservatives have have you know developed the strategy and implemented the strategy to to control the the national judiciary, not only at the Supreme Court level but also at, at the lower court level, and they've been very successful at it. Yes, they have, unfortunately, and their goal is to go around to uh, circumvent the uh, electoral process. And it's interesting, you know, in terms of uh, popular vote, Congress, more, the popular vote for Congress overall 
favors Democrats, but because of right. redistricting, <laughs> they Republicans do very well. But more people vote Democrat than vote Republican, but the redistricting. And redistricting could, uh, I mean, I suppose there could be one of the cases before a Supreme Court. And one of the things I learned working in a law factory myself in the New Hampshire State Senate where we made the laws mm -hmm. is that language is important. The effort, for one example, the effort to invest more in social service alternatives to police hurt itself badly. That effort hurt itself badly by the unfortunate phrase, defund the police. I wonder about the term court packing. Wouldn't court expansion be a, a less inflammatory term and still do the same thing? Yeah, I think that's an interesting view. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea of like the Democrats saying, well, we're in favor of, of court expansion. Um, uh, and in fact, a, um, uh, a political scientist who's leading one of the movements, the current movements to expand the Supreme Court, uh, when I contacted him while my book was in production and told him about my book, uh, he, he was quite upset because I was calling it court, court packing, right? He thought that was politically uh, 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 deleterious, uh, like it'd be a political suicide to call it court packing. And, and I kind of disagree with that. Um, uh, and Part of it is, is for instance, with um, FDR, with Roosevelt's court packing plan, where he denied that it was court packing. Right? He said, "Well, the, you know, the problem here is that the justices um, uh, cannot uh, carry their workload because they're too old." Uh, if Democrats today were to come out with a court expansion plan. Nobody is going to be fooled the same way nobody was fooled when Roosevelt said, uh, well, this is because the, the Supreme Court justices are having trouble keeping up with their workload. Um, so Democrats, if they were to come out and say, well, we're not packing the court, we're expanding the court. I don't think that would that would fool anybody. It's not like conservatives wouldn't be jumping all over it and calling it court packing. So in, I think in terms of a political strategy, it's, it's well worth thinking about whether the Democrats are better off just coming out and saying, yeah, we're court packing. And, and, you know, so did Mitch McConnell pack the court, right? When, when he refused to consider Merrick Garland and then, uh, then they, they, um, uh, nominated and, and, confirmed Gorsuch as soon as Trump came in, and then they rushed to to confirmation Amy Coney Barrett right right when when um, uh, Justice Ginsburg passed away uh, just before election uh, day last last year, right? I mean, um, uh, uh, I think there's, there could be a political benefit to a strategy of simply owning the term, right? So instead of pretending otherwise and and trying to hide it and then uh you know the public's more likely to say well why are they trying to hide it um the democrats should say yeah we're we're trying to pack the court um and we think it's a good thing for these reasons and i you know i want to add one one other political science point which i think is really interesting the public uh at least political research political science research suggests the public doesn't really uh, believe necessarily that 
the Supreme Court is mechanical in its decision-making. There seems to be quite a bit of awareness um, of people who follow the court, at least, um, that while the justices sincerely interpret uh, the law, that politics does come into play, that they're, they're, they are exercising discretion. And so if the, if the Democrats were to say, yeah, we're doing court packing um, because politics comes into play, but we don't want the court to be purely politics. We want the court to be applying the law. That's what they should be doing. But we recognize politics plays a role in that. I think that that's more likely to, to gain public acceptance than pretending that um, they're not court packing. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think this is absolutely clear. Um, like I said, I mean, I wouldn't object if the Democrats came out with a court packing plan and they called it something else. But I, I, think, I think calling it court packing very well might be the, the better strategy. The Supreme Court has really so much power that really affects all of us, really, in our daily lives. And, for example, what is democracy? It's about voting. It's about participating in our own government, governing governing ourselves. Voting rights have been under serious threat of late. The Roberts Court tragically, in my opinion, invalidated the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was a terrific act. States have been exercising the most intense voter suppression since the Jim Crow era. Obviously, uh, the Supreme Court, with three new right-wing justices, is not exactly likely to revisit that uh, Roberts decision overturning the Voting Rights Act. Can Democrats not legislatively, as you say, secure voting as a federally protected right immune from state attacks, such as onerous voter identification, felon disenfranchisement, and mail-in ballot restrictions, end of quote? Can that be done legislatively? I mean, they can in theory, but but can it be done? And what's the importance of the Supreme Court on voting rights? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important question. Um, um, number one, yes, the Democrats uh, can pass legislation like a new Voting Rights Act or, or like the, you know, what currently called the John Lewis Voting right. Rights Act, right. which, which would would sort of resurrect the old Voting Rights Act that, that the Roberts Court invalidated. Um, and, you know, there are other proposals for even more protections of, of um, voting rights. And I think the Democrats should pass those laws. But again, I think this comes back to um, the, the urgent need for changing the personnel of the Supreme Court for court packing. Because with the current personnel on the Supreme Court, even if the Democrats were somehow to pass uh, these uh, voting rights bills, um, so Uh, it became legislation, there's a very good chance that this Supreme Court will invalidate, strike down as unconstitutional these new new statutes. Uh, I mean, it's not a definite, but I think given their history, the court, this court has been uh, quite hostile towards democracy. And, and, you know, the case you mentioned where they, they invalidated a key provision in, in the Voting Rights Act, that was the Shelby versus Holder case in 2013. That's just one example. I mean, this court uh, 
does not like democracy, it seems, and and they show that in many ways. And if Congress were to pass a statute, there's a very good chance the court would strike it down. So really, uh, in an ideal world, uh, the Democrats would first pack the court and then pass voting rights legislation and the new progressive Roberts Court, right? You can, you can imagine that, right? The progressive Roberts Court. Sure. Um, after court packing, they would more than likely uphold these, these new democratic statutes. It, it seems that they would. Uh, and, and you write that on the same uh, vein, without progressive control of the court, voting rights will ultimately let, be left unprotected. Republicans will use voter suppression to try to vest control of the national government from Democrats in 2022 or 2024, end of quote. That, along with the expected effects of new gerrymandering, would be a serious, uh, perhaps fatal undermining of our democracy. If there's no expansion of the court, if the Democrats don't pack it, what are the prospects for continuing to undermine our democracy, which so many forces clearly intend. Yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, I think you're absolutely right that that uh, the Republicans will continue um, uh, suppressing the vote in multiple ways. Uh, gerrymandering will go unchecked. Uh, the Supreme Court already um, um, in a... a 2019 decision, the Supreme Court said that it will not try to to uh, review gerrymandering. They, they said that gerrymandering was a non-justiciable issue, and uh, a political question, so so to speak. Yeah. Meaning that that doesn't matter how egregious um, political gerrymandering might be, the Supreme Court saying we're not going to to touch it. And that's just one. That's another example of how this court. Uh, does not seem to care about democracy. If anything, it's hostile to democracy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if if um, Congress doesn't pass voting rights protections and the Supreme Court um, uh, isn't checked through court packing, I'm I'm not. I can't say I'm optimistic I, uh, for uh, the future of democracy in this country. Now, I, I have heard. You know, some some commentators say, well, you know, progressives and Democrats are being too alarmist here. Like, mm. uh, you know, yeah, there are all these new restrictions being passed, but it's probably not going to have much effect on on uh, votes. Well, you know, some some elections are very close. Right. And if you you swing, uh, you know, or you suppress, let's say, 10,000 votes, that could change the outcome in, in like a, a Senate election or a House election. And, and that matters, right? We have a, a Senate that's 50-50 right now. Yes. You swing one or two, two um, Senate elections, that's, that's very significant. And, and personally, I think that, that um, voting should, should be the most protected yes. of of rights, right? I mean, there, there should be a presumption that every person should vote, and there there should not be allowed any restrictions on voting without the most compelling 
of of reasons. Um, and and that seems to me like we have things exactly backwards now. Well, it does seem like the the far right knows what it's doing in voter suppression. And, you know, I didn't like Jim Crow in the 20th century. I don't like its 21st century version either. Voting, as you say, is absolute. It's just it's the foundation of of our democracy and our Republican form of, of government. Now, during the presidential campaign, then candidate Biden was asked about expanding the number of justices in the court, court packing. He, of course, being a good politician, successfully dodged the answer. Where is he now, and what is the status of any legislative movement for for court packing? Well, um, Biden, I think during the campaign, um, while well, I might not have been told, my my impression was that he was was generally against court packing, um, and you know I think Biden is is you know sort of you know obviously a veteran of political wars, oh, right? Yeah. I mean he. he you know, still believes that you know the Senate can operate, and and you know we shouldn't mess with the Supreme Court. But he did come around, and at least he he uh, appointed this this commission, right, to right. study Supreme Court changes. Um, I think there's something like 36 people on this this commission. Um, I'm not exactly positive if that's the right number, but it's quite a few people. Uh huh. Um, well, that gives some political you know, cover. Yeah, and and you know they're supposed to be studying you know possible changes to the court. My guess is is they they might come out with some you know um, some plan like term limits or something like that, uh, and basically fudge the fact that it could be found unconstitutional. Um, so you know, in terms of of you know, are there any current proposals? I don't know if anybody. I know there are members of of, of uh, the Senate and the House who who would support court packing, but I don't know if there are any bills that have been presented uh, that are currently before uh-huh. the House or the Senate. I think right now, you know, it's sort of a waiting game to see what this this commission says. And you know, based on the personnel and the commission, uh, you know, I really don't think they they come out and simply uh, say. Let's have straightforward court packing. Although, again, I think that you know, if they really thought it through, um, right. they that's that should be the conclusion mm-hmm. they reach. Um, now, of course, everything we've been talking about court packing, passing a court packing statute, or passing voting rights legislation, that all has the problem of of the filibuster, right? <laughs> True. And so in in, in you know, in an ideal world, right, I'd say the first thing the Democrats should do is eliminate the filibuster. Number two, pack the court. Number three, pass voting rights legislation. And then let the people vote and decide. And I think the, the Democrats will be in very good shape. <laughs> I like the idea of keeping democracy alive. What can I tell you? And I, I don't know where this is in terms of public support. I don't sense there'd be a lot of public support. Or that there is at the moment. I wonder if if you sense any trend toward uh, court packing, and what if people are in favor of court packing, what they can do. Well, uh, I don't know if there's much trend at all right now, and and I think this goes to another 
point just about uh, you know public perception of the Supreme Court. You know, I've been talking about political science, empirical research about how people feel about the court. But it's also true that that many people don't think a whole lot about the court. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a constitutional law professor, and you're you're a former legislator. You know, and we might we might think about the court a whole lot more <laughs> than most people. And and you know, there are surveys which you know have some disturbing results, like oh, yes. you know something like I don't know. 13% of the people think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court, right? You know, um, so, right. you know, I don't know. I don't know if, it, if I'd say right now that, you know, um, I, I certainly don't know offhand of some surveys saying, right. you know, how does the public really feel about court packing? Because I, I don't think many people were thinking about it right. uh, a whole lot. And, you know, if the Democrats were actually to start doing something, you know, yeah, then that would that would be um, that would bring it to the forefront of, of public consciousness at least for a while. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't, it's it's true that uh, when when people vote for president, the vast majority of people don't even think about the Supreme Court. But you and right. I know it's hugely important, as as Bernie would say, huge. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Fascinating here and and uh, interesting discussion. It'll go forward. The book is called Pack the Court. A Defense of Supreme Court Expansion. Our guest has been its author, law professor Stephen M. Feldman. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, don't you love nobody? Turn you around. Turn you around. Turn you around. Well, don't you love nobody? Turn you around. You got to keep on walking. Keep on talking. March into the freedom land. Hey! Don't you let nobody turn you around. Turn you around, turn you around. Well, don't you let nobody turn you around. You got to keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom land. Well, don't you let the policeman turn you around, turn you around, turn you around. Well, don't let the policeman turn you around. You got to keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom land. Keep on walking, keep on talking, march into the freedom land.